Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. Then you moved on to Triple uh, One Squadron and you flew with the famous Black Arrows. We have to talk about that. Can you describe what it was like to fly with them? Yes, when I was in Germany, I, I did fly with the RAF um, Germany team was my squadron, 93 Squadron. And they let me fly as a, a spare because I was a very young pilot and I only did a year out there. And then they, I was sent back to, to England and I said, on the off chance. Nobody had any jobs because they closed down a whole load of hunter squadrons. Uh, this is in 1956 and 57. And um, so uh, when you went into the Ministry of Defence, there was little things saying you can be assured of our utmost sympathy because you were not going to get a flying job. And anyway, I, a friend of mine had joined Travel One Squadron and I phoned him up and I said, hey, any chance? So he had a word with the boss, he said, hey, this guy's really good, you know. And I bought him a few beers or so. And um, <coughs> they accepted me onto the squadron and so that, that's where it started. And uh, we did close formation flying, of course, and with increasing numbers of aircraft, at first, we would have about five aeroplanes and then we would have nine aeroplanes and then in the Farnborough of that year, 1958, because I joined them right at the beginning of 1958, by the time we came up to July-August time when you're working up for Farnborough which at that time was always the first week in September and the boss, squadron leader Roger Top, uh, remarkable man, absolutely remarkable man, uh, test pilot and did all sorts of things, had two or three AFCs, I mean, brilliant, wow. very strong character, you didn't argue with him, but if you did the job, he would look after you, you know, he was very loyal to his pilots and we were very loyal to him. So he did all sorts of extraordinary things to make Treble One what it was. He built that from just being an ordinary aerobatic squadron, eventually became the Royal Air Force aerobatic squadron, rather like the Red Arrows are today. Uh, and we did, we, we were still operational, but we did do uh, half of our flying was formation aerobatics. And of course the big thing with that year was we went to Farnborough and we decided to do a big formation. Originally it was going to be 20 hunters doing a loop. Nobody had ever done that before, nothing like. And so it was going to be called Roger Top, was his name, so we were going to call it the Top 20, which at the time of course was a, a, a music thing. Um, so, and then we, we tried doing 20 in various shapes and it was quite difficult to do. So we changed it from having five in the front with 
four in line astern. Right. If you went round the loop in that formation, the back end would fall off because it's all just too difficult. So we had a frontage of seven. Then we put three aircraft in line astern. All right, 7321. Okay, so we stuck one more in the middle behind the boss. So the line behind the squadron commander was four, and all the others were three. So we had 22 aeroplanes. So what we did, we came across Farnborough um, at about, I suppose, 200 feet or so, pulled up for a loop, did this big loop round, came out the bottom, did another loop. Oh, you did too, right? <laughs> yeah. It's what the people in the newspapers call a loop the loop. <laughs> Stupid phrase. <laughs> Anyway, that's what we did. We did two loops, and at the end of the second loop, we broke away, um, how many would it have been? Six airplanes. So we ended up with 16 in a diamond, diamond shape. And then we pulled up, we did a, a roll, a diamond, and then we broke away another seven. Ended up with nine, and then the nine did a few manoeuvres, and then that broke away, ended up with five. And so it was quite a complicated display. And in fact, he really did a very good job on pleasing the public. I mean, he was a showman. I can imagine that. He was a knew exactly pleaser. how to oh, yeah. make people. And, and we never did more than 11 minutes. Because if you go to a flying display and somebody goes on for 20 minutes or so, the crowd are sort of. Ready to go. <laughs> they're fed up. Yeah. But if you do 11 minutes and then bomb burst down, bomb burst up, all gone, then that would be, um, they'd want more. I think it's always, that's what all we always did. We always, wherever we went, went around Europe quite a lot, France in particular, <coughs> doing these air displays, and we always finished when they wanted more. Yeah. And I think it was a very good thing to do. I mean, there are a few people in show business who need to know about that. Uh, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I've seen a few pictures online, and they're just incredible. Like, I mean, it's uh, you wouldn't you would never see that today. No, we way. were quite close together. I mean, the the wings were overlapped by about oh, by about that much, about half the wing overlapped, and we did often get uh, disturbance from the other aircraft. If you got into line astern, you could feel the uh, exhaust from the chap in front on your tail plane wow. you could feel it bumbling around and um, so you know but hang in there and the more you did it the better you got and one of the interesting things was that we never ever failed anybody who joined us uh, as an aerobatic pilot and they weren't all specially selected I mean people would phone up and they'd say somebody pick up the phone and say there's a Fred Grimes here wants to join us and anybody know Fred Grimes oh yeah he's all right he's a good chap yeah he's on 66 squadron I think isn't he yeah yeah good bloke so the boss would say okay we'll have him <laughs> and, that's, and that's how it lit I promise you it sounds like a joke but that is exactly how it was done the people and then when they turned up they they, they would just go into our training program and every, nobody who was flying a hunter was not able to do what we did so Absolutely. although it was well thought of in the press and other places what we did was what any hunter pilot 
pretty well any under under pilot could have done given the same yeah. kind of training and that went I did that for three years um, the must have been the highlight of your career it was yes it was I was quite a young man I was 21 I think 20 21 when I joined Trouble One and uh, when I left I then went off to Central Flying School and became an instructor mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk about some of the hunter squadrons you flew on and also the marks. And can you tell us the difference between each mark? Because there's quite a few of them. Yes. Well, the Mark One was a very basic aeroplane. The Mark II had a sapphire engine, which I never flew. Um, the Mark IV, which I did fly, had more fuel, but very much the same. And then it got the, the Mark VI, which had the extensions to the leading edge I was talking about earlier on, very important. And the Mark VI also, they changed the engine from a Mark 100 series Avon to a 200 series Avon. And that was, had more power. I mean, there was, um, the Mark I Hunter had 7,500 pounds of thrust. The Mark VI had 10,500 pounds of thrust. Big difference. And not a big difference in the weight of the aircraft so it really did really did make a, a big difference uh, I can remember when we first got one the first one we got in Germany uh, the, and the squadron commander did the first trip on the first airplane as you would expect and he took off and put the gear up and then did a loop immediately after takeoff you don't do that no. any airplane you could do it in a modern typhoon or something yeah. like that but we're not talking we're talking 60 years ago so it's quite a big difference really. and so the mark six then the mark six could also carry more stores underneath the wings on the pylons you could carry rockets carry bombs but mostly we carried fuel tanks and then about that, that was the last of the day fighter hunters, really. Mm. It had no radar, it, you know, it was, uh, it was a very basic aeroplane for those days. The, the lightning came in then with its radar and it had missiles, which we didn't have. So they took the hunter and they said, right, no more day fighter, ground attack. Right. down to the ground you go you see so we, we then got what's called the mark nine which is what this is this is the mark nine and the mark nine had a on the back you can see a parachute ah oh, the shoot drag shoot yeah. had leading edge had the same engine uh, and everything else was much the same except it carried quite big fuel tanks the fuel tanks under the wings two inboard two outboard. The outboard ones were 100 gallons each, the inboard ones were 230 gallons each, so you were carrying quite a lot of external fuel, much more than the internal fuel of the aeroplane. So that was very good and we, so when did I first fly the Mark? So I went from Trouble One, the next aeroplane, next time I flew the Hunter was on 208 Squadron which was in Bahrain. Right. And we had Mark 9s. There was also, if we talk about the Mark 9 being a ground attack aeroplane, they also had Mark 10s, and the Mark 10 had a special nose, and there'd be a little camera here. So it was a recce? 
fighter wrecking. Yeah. So that was an FR-10 it was called, fighter recce Mark 10, had exactly the same engine and everything else, still had guns on it, but it was designed for doing low-level low level work. Mm -hmm. The RAF was very good with its fighter reconnaissance, I never did the fighter reconnaissance course, but it was quite a difficult course, and they did take some extraordinary pictures. They were very good at flying over, say, an enemy area, a, a village or some kind of military installation, and they could fly across and they'd take their pictures, but they'd also, up here, they'd remember, they'd say, it was this type of bridge and it was that kind of hangar wow. and there was this type of aircraft. And, and so when they came back, they'd brief the strike people and they would go off and attack that target, in time of war, yeah, of course, but I mean, in time of peace, you'd attack it anyway with cameras. So, um, you, they, they were very good at doing that. Um, and in fact, <laughs> just tell you a small story, one of my friends was on the squadron in Germany, and they decided, with their low-level hunters, that they would see, have a competition. Who could take the biggest picture of a cow? <laughs> And so, and the, and the cows came bigger and bigger pictures came back until eventually somebody produced uh, an eight by six or whatever it is, you know, picture like that. And on it, all you could see was two great big eyes <laughs> and the horns going off the side of the that picture. That scale right there. <laughs> and this was taken, you know, probably at about 10 feet above the ground, uh, out of the side of this hunter. And the boss, squadron commander, always called the boss, the boss saw this photograph and he said, stop! <laughs> that was the end of that competition because they were as far as it could. <laughs> but but they, it, it was a very good aeroplane, the hunter, for doing that kind of low-level work. We also had the other supersonic or sonic aeroplane that we had was the Swift and that was oh, also yeah. converted from being a day fighter at which it was useless to a ground attack, uh, not a ground attack, a fighter reconnaissance at which it was superb, mm -hmm. really good and we had several two or three squadrons of low level uh, Swifts. The FR9, I think it was called. FR9, yeah. FR5. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And that was a superb aeroplane for doing that. So there we are. The Hunters all the way through. The two-seater Hunter, um, it's the T7. That wasn't in service until I was on about my second or third squadron. And of course that made training an awful lot easier. Side-by-side -side yeah. seating, ejector seats, had gun, had one gun, which you could use for training, and it had radar ranging on the gun side, all sorts of stuff. So, and that was a lovely aeroplane. Uh, on back, going back to Travel One, our boss, our second boss, was a guy called Peter Latham, also a very, very talented man, and he had all kinds of ideas. And one of the things he did was to fly the two-seater in the lead. Now, the two-seater didn't have smoke. All the others had smoke, but it didn't matter because he was in the in front the lead, yeah. of about at least nine aeroplanes, sometimes many more. And so we, he would call smoke on, smoke off, and we used to squeeze the trigger and that would pump diesel fuel from 
fuel tank, which was sitting on top of the gun pack, 40 gallons of uh, diesel fuel, down a pipe, into the jet pipe, white smoke, lots of white smoke, and then you could just squeeze the trigger and the smoke would come out. <coughs> and anyway, one day Peter Latham was flying the two-seater, as he did, and he pulled up for a loop, smoke on go, and we all squeezed up, smoke filled the sky, and he forgot because he wasn't squeezing the trigger <laughs> so he just forgot and we came down and we actually put the place almost un couldn't land at the place because it was sort of smoke everywhere and so when we got down we had a debrief about that so the boss said ah right I'll remember that and off he went unfortunately what he then did was on the next flight we had we were pulling up for a loop like this and he called smoke on go and he thought what I'll do is I'll squeeze the trigger as they are doing mm -hmm. and then I'll remember to say smoke off and release the trigger. The two-seat hunter had the original mark, well I don't want to get too technical but the, the two-seat hunter had the original 100 series engine and if you pull the trigger and fire the guns the engine went out so they had to fit what was called a fuel dipping device so when you pulled the trigger less fuel was fed into the engine right. which prevented it from overfueling, surging and stopping okay. but the guns weren't connected but the, the, the fuel dipping still was so as he pulled up like this he pulled the trigger and he just went like that out at the bottom of the formation all over the place and great cries of distress from everybody and when we came down everybody got emotional about it and the only we won't do that again and so that was that was sort of the sort of little things that happen yeah you know and when you look at aircraft accidents so often they are that kind of simple little thing nobody thinks about it a small technical problem and it can cause all kinds of trouble. Absolutely, yeah, it's a little things, isn't it? So yeah, Roger, how many hours did you get on the Hunter and did you enjoy your time flying it? I suppose um, just a fraction under 2,000 hours. Uh, it's not a lot really, considering the number of squadrons I was on and the uh, number of years that I was flying, but as I say, we didn't the longest flight I ever did in a Hunter was probably two hours and that was with all the fuel tanks going at high level doing a ferry flight or something like that most of the time our flying was 50 minutes hour so you do that twice a day you get in an airliner and fly to Paris or back and you know you've got hours and hours or Absolutely. more not fly to the States and back later on of course I flew those kind of aeroplanes and um, so I had just under 2,000 hours in the Hunter and total when I finished flying was 12,000 hours so quite a bit more in other aeroplanes but not that many trips by comparison I mean, my log was full of trips in a Hunter for all 40 minutes that kind of thing yeah. So Roger, what did you do after you left uh, Triple One Squadron? 
Okay, I, I immediately went to the Central Flying School where they taught me to be an instructor and I went up to Cranmore and I instructed on the Jet Provost. Then I went to Valley where I instructed on the NAT when it first came into service. And then I had a problem with my back and they sent me off to Halton where I looked after apprentices for a couple of years. Then I went back to Flying Hunters in, in uh, Jordan I was a flight commander on a Hunter 9 Squadron, 208 Squadron. Then I went back to Chivna, where I was a flight commander there for a while. Then I got promoted and went to <coughs> Biggin Hill, where I was involved in aircrew selection uh, there for a couple of years. And then my last job in the Air Force was a squadron commander of a Hunter Squadron, 63 Squadron, at uh, Chivna. And then I quit at my 38 16 point, which is when you could retire with fairly small salary, fairly small pension. Anyway, I, that's when I stopped being in the Air Force. The next thing I did was I went out to Jordan where I instructed the Jordanian Air Force using Bulldogs, a little piston engine airplane. We flew those out from Presswick to Amman in Jordan. That's another story. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> you talk about that. We, we, we flew out there, and then uh, after I'd been there for a while, the company that I was working for, because it was a civilian organisation, working for the airline and also helping the Jordanian Air Force as well. A bit complicated. <coughs> but they weren't doing very well, and things were getting difficult, so I uh, got a job flying Learjets out of Amman the airline on the charter outfit so I flew the Learjet for a, a year or two and then somebody in Saudi a Pakistani friend of mine I'd met he um, phoned me up middle of the night in Jordan and said hey got a job for you you can come and fly with us and um, your wife can come with you as hosting because in Saudi Arabia it's a bit difficult for women you had single women on airplanes with single men or men right. married to other people, it could be a problem, something that worried them. So they were quite happy for me to have my wife fly with me, although she'd never been an air hostess before. I claimed to be one of the only pilots who married his wife before she became an air hostess. Okay, I'll go into that. So we then flew uh, for this chap in, in Saudi who was in quite a famous guy eventually he became president of Lebanon wow. name was Hariri and he was eventually killed by whoever locally in Beirut after long after we left but we worked for him in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh for four and a half years and in that time I flew the Sabre liner which was a sort of little twin jet executive airplane a bit bigger than a Learjet and then the Gulfstream 3 which was my favorite airplane a wonderful airplane. I flew that for four and a half two and a half three years that's right three years and then at the end of that time <coughs> I thought well I better come home my dad wasn't my dad had died and my mother wasn't too well so it's time to come home so we came back home and Somebody, a friend of mine, said to me, why don't you rejoin the Air Force? And I said, what? And he said, yes, why don't you rejoin the Air Force? So I spoke to this guy and 
and he said, hey, uh, he was a hunter, this guy was a hunter pilot, and he met me in the Air Force Club and said, yeah, why don't you come in, you can fly VIPs out of Northolt on the HS-125. I said, I've never flown an HS-125. That's not a problem. Um, and he, I said, well, how can you do this? He said, well, I'm the Air, I'm, I'm, it's an air marshal or something like that. Edit. So I got this job and they brought me back into the Air Force, gave me my rank and squadron leader back again and all my seniority. So from the pension point of view, it was a good thing to do. And then I flew HS-125s, flying government ministers, minor royalty, that sort of stuff around Europe uh, in the 125. And after three years of that, that's enough of that. So I left and went to Heathrow, where I flew a Gulfstream again for another few years with a private company there. And then in 1990, I quit doing that, went to Oxford Training School, which is Kidlington, just outside Oxford, training a lot of pilots there at the time, and then trained people like British Airways guys and girls doing their first instructional stuff and I did that until I was 65 and I decided I'm getting old it's time, time to stop you know time to, time to quit so that's when I quit wow I mean what a career Roger but uh, so yeah how many flying hours did you get in total because there must have been a fair few altogether yeah 12,000 Oh, that's quite a fair view. Well, yeah, it, it, it would have been, it's nothing compared with an airline pilot with, with the same kind of experience time. I and mean, he would have 20,000 because they get airborne and they fly for seven hours, eight hours, that's whatever. True. Yeah, yeah. We, I never did that. Uh, mm -hmm. The longest flight, well, I suppose the longest flight I ever did was in the Gulfstream where was, we went from went from Paris, Charles de Gaulle, to Dulles in Washington, wow. across the Atlantic. And that was eight hours. Didn't think a Gulfstream could go that far. I didn't think it would go that far, <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. But we, as we got closer and closer, there was lots of airfields on the way. Bangor, down, down, down the east coast of the States. I could have dropped into any of them. Weather was like this, clear blue sky. Mm. So I was able to take it to its maximum. When we landed, we, we had minimum fuel, I guess, when we landed. You were pushing it. <laughs> I was pushing it. <laughs> so, Roger, I'm going to ask you a few personal questions here. So, um, do you have any hobbies? Yes. Um, I used to do a lot of sailing. Um, and we had a boat, and that carried on for a while until it became so that my wife was working and I was working and it was we just couldn't didn't have time to look after this boat which was on the south coast at Emsworth and uh, lovely lovely time we had doing that I started doing flying model airplanes again wow radio control now because in the early days of course they were just uh, tissue and balsa wood and bits of rubber mm -hmm. and wound them up and launched them. Now we have all this lovely radio control stuff. Great we can do all sorts yeah. of things. So, and I still do that at my local club. Don't we you. go down, it's only about half a mile away. And so I go down there quite often. Oh, brilliant. But that's, I do it. Oh, I used to do a bit of shooting as well. 
um, which is why I'm a bit deaf. Um, so that was another thing. We went all over the countryside doing that, and that was good. But apart from that, not much. Brilliant. So this could be a silly question, but favourite aircraft you've flown? Favourite aeroplane? Well, I suppose it was the hunt. Yeah. And I was lucky to fly some really good aeroplanes. And sometimes, you know, you ask somebody a, a pilot a question like that, and he'll say, what was the best handling aeroplane I flew? And in my case, the answer would be that one over there, the chipmunk. Chipmunk, yeah. Everyone chipmunk. says that. Just, I've just a, a little piston engine aeroplane. Old trainer, wasn't it? Old trainer, yeah. yeah but, but it flew beautifully. I, I mean, heard that. Just the controls were just so delicate. You move the rudder pedals or the control stick, it was just so delicate. So I liked the chipmunk as a pilot's aeroplane better than any other. But I suppose my favourite aeroplanes where I had the most fun was the Hunter and probably the Goldstream 3. So, um, is there an aircraft you wish you could have, have flown or you would like to fly in the future, maybe? Well, I'll never fly anything in the future, but I did fly in a Spitfire, which was probably, you know, going back on what we were just saying, yeah. that was probably one of the best handling aeroplanes I ever flew. It was a two-seat aeroplane. I sat in the back seat, and the guy in the front, really good guy, um, let me do all the flying except oh, wow. the takeoff and landing. But we were going low level oh, doing yeah, aerobatics. <laughs> oh, I mean, when you think that and people talk about the Spitfire and how wonderful it is, they're not exaggerating. It is a superb aeroplane. I don't think I've heard a bad word said about that. I could not believe when, when the guy said to me, well, you want to do a loop? And I said, yeah. I said, what speed do you want for a loop? And he said, well, about 300 knots. And we were doing 140 at the time. So I just moved the stick gently forward, and the speed went like that. It's so clean, such a clean aeroplane. Uh, must have been wonderful to fly it in its combat condition because we were flying the aeroplane, really looking after the engine and everything like that. So we weren't flying it to its maximum performance, but it was still very impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the final question, um, have you written a book or are you planning to write a book in the future of your amazing career? It never occurred to me to do that. I'm not really a very academic person. I was always bottom of ground school when I went through my training. (laughs) That's terrible really. Well, you came out on top, that's for sure. Well, the flying bit was better. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Roger, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to hear your story. Okay, you're very welcome.